I've had something on my mind and wasn't sure kind of where we would get into a conversation, uh, really picking up on a conversation from earlier this year, but when we would rejoin that conversation. Um, and I think that we're going to have some opportunity to do another culture-wise soon, talking about the secularization of, of the church in our day in our country. But I think to some degree, we've gotten used to or we're getting used to the idea that the kings of this world, culture, politics, education, entertainment, that they all got together. They had a convention of some sort and we weren't invited to the convention. And they got together and they made some decisions about the world and the world we live in and where it's going. And they decided that church is irrelevant and that Christians are duped or dumb. They decided that Christianity is all about a power grab. It's about trying to control culture, which, by the way, never was, never was meant to be, just in case you weren't clear on that. And they decided, maybe worst of all, that God is weak and that He is somehow a disappointment to them. I don't know if you think that's right. Does it sound like what you experience in, in here outside the walls of the church in everyday life? More and more. Does it bother you? Yeah, it, it bothers me. I see Christians bothered. I see Christians unsettled. I see Christians becoming deeply insecure. And I see them feeling deeply threatened. And a pattern I've begun to see more and more growing in the lives of Christians, of people in not just our church, but in churches across the nation, is I've seen people reacting by moving into the, the, the fear-based, threat-based mindsets that people often move into when feeling threatened or in isolation into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, or fake, right? And be clear what I mean by these. Fight. If someone moves into a fight mentality when they feel threatened or isolated, they just lash out. They say, you're wrong and I'm right. It doesn't mean they're necessarily right. It doesn't mean that they're being logical about it. They're just feeling threatened and so they're ready to go to war. If someone moves into flight, they say, can we just change the subject and talk about something else because I really don't want to talk about this. I don't want to go down this road. I don't want to get caught up in all this stuff, right? If someone moves into a freeze reaction, it's just they, just, they just don't want to get caught in the middle of anything. Maybe if I don't move, maybe if I don't say anything, maybe if I don't blink, then they won't even notice that I'm here. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say with the culture war that's going on out there, so I'm just going to not engage at all. And then other people will move into this fawn or this fake, which is a performative surface level engagement. The idea is that I'll just kind of dip my toe here or here. I'll try to fit in with this crowd. I'll fit in with this crowd. And maybe I can just make everybody happy and I'll never find myself getting into trouble. I wonder this morning, if you could see yourself on a normal day, like just an everyday Tuesday, if you could find your typical self defaulting into one of those four, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. I wonder if you can see that. Maybe if not, at least like me, you can admit, you can confess, if I don't go there all the time, that I have gone to at least one or all of them at some point. And I certainly see people all around me moving into those reactions based on feeling the pressure of culture around them. Now, give you a heads up where we're headed this morning. None of those, not fight, not flight, not freeze, not fawn, none of those are the appropriate Christian response to the feeling of secular, that come with secularization, or the feelings that come with feeling isolated or threatened, or at least feeling like we're out of favor with the kings of this world. But instead, rather than fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, Christians, listen, we must know well, know so well the wonder of Jesus 
so deeply and so personally that we feel secure in him even when we're threatened by them and that our response comes from deep within. It's an undisturbed presence of joy. Which, by the way, if you want to talk about helping people to understand the hope within us, being consumed with an undisturbed presence of joy is the most winsome, most reasonable defense we can give for the hope that lies within our souls because of Jesus. You remember the beginning of the book of James when James made this this awkward phrase. He said, consider it joy. Remember that? Consider it joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter trials of every sort. You, You read that the first time, you're going, this dude is nuts. Like, consider it joy when I run into trouble in life. But the thing is, I think James believes this. I think he actually believes this is possible. He, I believe him. And I believe that James is somebody who actually experienced this in his life. And so he was writing to other Christians to say, look, this is a possibility for you. Consider it joy when you encounter trials of every sort. The question is, how did he get there? And how did he find that place? And how can we find that place? And our psalm this morning will help with that. Grab your Bible and turn to Psalm 48. I think it will help with this. It's a psalm that takes a really good look at God, at who he is and what he's really like. It takes a really good look at God's city, the city of Zion. And remember this summer, what we've learned already is that Zion in the Bible isn't simply a place. It's not just uh, about geography on a map, but Zion is the place that God dwells. And we learn throughout the Bible that God dwells with his people, by his spirit, and through his son, Jesus Christ. First John 4 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he abides in God. 1 Corinthians 3 asks the Christian, do you not know that you're a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the idea that the Bible teaches is that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you are the city of Zion because God dwells with you. You are a city, you're a citizen of Zion. So then what makes the city of Zion, what makes the citizen of Uh, of the kingdom of God secure when we feel threatened? What what makes us feel secure even when the world around us is growing in intensity and its pressure against us? And the answer has always been and will always be God alone makes us secure. God makes us secure. His presence, His person, His character, His nature, His protection, His greatness. And this psalm, we'll look at all of those things. In fact, as I started reading this psalm, it kind of moves in three scenes. The first scene is a picture of God walking in his city, Zion. He's walking, he's a great king, and he's moving through his city. The second picture is the enemies of God, the kings of the world, those who would say that God is weak and that he is a disappointment and that God's people are foolish. They assemble together and they come to the city and some things happen when they come and get a look of God and Zion. And then the third picture is of the people of God in reflection on their relationship with God and on the great and wondrous deeds of God. And I want to look at the three parts of this psalm, and I want to try to understand what the psalmist teaches us about how to be grounded in the midst of times that are changing and challenging or when you feel threatened. So here's Psalm 48, verse 1. Listen to this. Psalmist writes, 
Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves and they passed by together. They saw it. They were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. And then the psalmist turns to God and says, you, with the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. And then he says to the people, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her for how long? Forever. Let's pause our our reading right there. This, This psalm makes the point that the presence And the protection of God is what makes the person of God secure no matter what trials may come. And the psalmist bases this not on some sentimentalism about religiosity. He bases it upon a view of God in which he sees God as exceedingly great among all things on the entire earth. Now, he uses this word great a lot, and I think that word can be confusing for us because in our world, a lot of people claim goat status, the greatest of all time, and there's arguments about who is the the greatest of all time, the goat. If you think about basketball, a lot of people, and they're wrong, but a lot of people think LeBron is the goat, but he's not better than Jordan, and I even made a case a few years ago on this stage saying he's probably like fifth or sixth because Magic is better and Larry Bird is better. So is he the GOAT? Was he the GOAT? Will he ever be considered the GOAT? I don't know and I don't care, but he's not, right? <laughs> Tom Brady moved to football because more of you are football fans. Tom Brady's got to be the GOAT because he has the most rings, and yet Aaron Rodgers is the GOAT because he's the best who's ever played the position, right? <laughs> You see, GOAT has so much subjectivity to it. In fact, I read an article on Medium, the great news source Medium. They said this about GOAT status. They said, uh, greatness, it looks different for everyone. What you have to do is just find whatever you think makes you great, and that's how you can now define greatness. They went on to say, for some people, just getting out of bed, that is greatness. The psalmist, in, in, in a world where people are always vying for who's most glorious and who is the greatest, he gives some definition to why he calls God great. He uses three different words in the first three verses that we translate as great, and he just stacks them one on top of another to build this argument, this case that God is exceedingly great among all things. The first great is in the first verse, great is the Lord. And this word literally means big, like really, really, really big is the Lord. He's vast in magnitude or in volume. God is massive, is what the psalmist says. And he's saying this in contrast. 
Our God is greater in magnitude than all of the little g gods on the earth who claim to have power and be able to fulfill promises for you, who claim to be keepers of knowledge and and know the things that you need to know. They have understanding. The promises here that, that everything glitters isn't gold, but our God is. He exceeds all of the ideas and the powers that claim to be goat in this world because his magnitude is vast. He He's really, really, really big. It's even ridiculous for us to even compare, except for the fact that I think we're in danger of looking but not really seeing. And because we're often in danger of looking but not seeing, he he begins to pile on. Great is the Lord. And then he says, greatly to be praised. And there's word greatly. The Hebrew word means, it literally means muchness, like a lot, fully to be praised with full force and full intensity. Like he is so big, it deserves, it warrants an equally big and powerful response from us. Maybe we're in danger if we don't fully worship God like this, fully praise him with all of our being and all of our might. We're in danger of looking, but not looking carefully. Because if we look at God and we get a glimpse of him, of his glory, if we have actually a personal experience with who God is and what he's really like, it's awe-inspiring. He's not a, a, a weak and disappointing figure in a bigger story. He is the great story. And even the enemies of God come and are inspired. They are awestruck when they encounter God. No one is unimpressed when they come against God. It's like, it's like uh, have you ever been to the Empire State Building or, or um, the Colosseum in Rome or the Eiffel Tower? Have you been to a place like this with a giant structure? It's just three places I've been to. I've seen them in pictures. I'd seen them on TV. The Eiffel Tower was this cute arrow-like thing that we wanted to see. And then I went, went and I stood beneath the Eiffel Tower and it's like, whoa. And it shocks you. Like there's no way to prepare for the size of an object like that. It's awe-inspiring, and that's the way the author of this psalm describes the Lord. He's massive, and when you come before him, your adoration, your praise is equally uh, huge with force and might. It's like, whoa, can you believe what I'm standing beneath at this moment? It reminds me of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, and of Jesus quoting it in, in the Gospels when it talks about the Lord is one, and there is none like the Lord. So you worship the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, with everything you have. Fix your eyes on Jesus and be swept into the glorious presence and the work that he has on this earth. With all that you are, come before him. That's the invitation of Psalm 48, to see and to respond. And there's a third great here. It's another Hebrew word. It's in verse 3. It says, the great king is there. And it's in reference, this word is in reference to like a, a, an awe-inspiring quality, a majestic, royal, lush quality. This king is majestic. This king is awe-inspiring. When you just look at him, you go, oh, he is good. He's not a knockoff. He's the real thing. God's glory, his 
splendor, his majesty is weightier. And the satisfaction of being with him, of knowing him as Lord is more fulfilling than all of the things that you might be drawn to trust in or all of the things that you might be attracted to. If you could like put him on a scale, he just blows the scale away. He just subsumes it all. He consumes it all. None of it stands next to him. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians 3 when he goes, all of these things that I used to prove that I was great. All of the things that people of the earth worship and adore and are markers and signs of success and greatness, I don't count them less. I count them as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The psalmist in Psalm 86 is David. In Psalm 86, David writes this, There is no one like you among the gods, Lord, nor are there any works like yours on the whole earth. All the nations whom you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and they will glorify your name for you are great and you do wondrous deeds. You alone singularly are God. And when you read this, it's like if I was to say, I bought a burger for I was hungry. There's a cause and effect here. And when David says, for you are great and you do wondrous deeds, what he means is God's intense and massive glory is so far outpacing all of the markers of good and great things in this earth that two things are going to happen. Verse 8 and 9 are going to happen. Two things are going to happen. Everything is going to look tiny in comparison And everything is going to come to bow before the Lord and recognize you are the great one, right? And you hear foreshadowing a little bit of the promise in Philippians 2, that line that says at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow. And every, not just the church, every tongue will confess. It'll be undeniable, unmistakable to go, he is the king of kings. Yeah. I was mistaken, or I had no idea it was that good. He is, oh my goodness, the Lord of lords. And they'll be filled with wonder. That's where the psalmist goes next in in Psalm 48. He goes on to say that even God's biggest critics, even those who who said God is disappointing and his people are dumb and the whole faith thing is ridiculous, Even the enemies of God, when they come on the attack, they come on the offense, when they actually get close to God, when they actually get a glimpse of God in Zion, they are awestruck, he says. And because they've been detractors of God, because they've made little of God, they've made fun of God, because they said those people are duped and dumb and all they're trying to do is have their way and have life look like the way they want it to look like, it says that they also are struck with fear. Look at verse 4. Lo, the kings assembled themselves, and it's plural, many kings of many kingdoms, all voices claiming to be the goat. They came together, they surrounded the city, they came, they saw, but they didn't conquer. It says they passed by together, and when they finally saw it, they were amazed, they were terrified, they fled in alarm, panic seized them there, anguish 
as of a woman in childbirth. The overconfident, misinformed rulers of the world, the kind who would typically say, church is is irrelevant and, and God is disappointing and those people, they are just dumb as a doornail, right? Those people, when they encounter the living God, they are immediately aware of their mistake. You remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Indiana Jones, they thought they had him in a hole. They had him trapped and defeated, left for dead, but he's Indiana Jones. He never dies. They're making a new Indiana Jones movie and it's coming out this year, Indiana Jones 5. He never dies, Right? But he, he escapes and he's going to steal a Nazi plane. His plan is to fly him and Marion away to safety and, and try to get ahead of the Nazis and recover the Ark and save the Ark of the Covenant. But he goes to steal a plane and he's going to get it started and pull the chain. And then he feels the presence of someone behind him. And he turns like Indiana Jones would with his fists balled up and he turns to punch the guy. And you remember the scene, as soon as he turns, he realizes he's about eye level with the guy's midriff. And he looks up at this nasty, big, bald, mustache dude, not wearing a shirt. And he's like, oh, I'm messing with a different kind of animal, right? That's what Psalm 48 says. The kings of this earth, puffed up as they are, the rulers, the enemies of God. And remember, we all once were enemies of God. Don't ever forget that. It says, they came and they saw, and immediately they knew their mistake. And these fled with terror. They were panicked. They were in anguish as of a woman in childbirth. Like when, I don't know if you, if you haven't had a child, and you, you might not know this, but when childbirth takes place, it's immediate. Like a, a woman doesn't go into labor and go, hmm, I wonder if the baby's real. Like they know <laughs> this is real. They, they don't go into labor and go, maybe I'll have a baby today. I don't know. No, it's immediate and it's happening and you have no choice. It has begun. You have faced life and death and, and there's no getting out of it. And that is the, the condition of the enemies of God, according to the psalmist, when they came and, and surrounded Zion on that day, they said, we've made a grave error here. And they fled. It's a picture, uh, a fearsome picture for them, but the good news for us, it's a picture of the security of God and the security of God's people. The fidelity uh, of God to the old covenant with Israel, the, the fidelity of God to the new covenant with the church. We may not view ourselves as great. We may not view ourselves as something to tremble at when the kings of the earth assemble, the entertainment and politics and education and culture assembles against us. We may not think, well, wait till they see us. And yet the psalmist says that we, Zion, are like the geographical city of Zion on this day when they were surrounded. The church is impregnable. The church is indestructible. It may get difficult at times, but we're not going anywhere. We're not going away. It's not going to happen. There may be days when we're surrounded on all sides, but we won't be destroyed. Pressed, but not crushed. Struck down, but oh no, you're not going to destroy us. God's promise here is that he stands far above every enemy. That he is the great one. 
that he is, is not a force that can be reckoned with by anyone who claims goat status on this earth. And it's important for us to remember where God stands, his promises stand. And if his promises stand with his people, his people are always secure. And we need to remember that. Now, we, we've got to check ourselves at times in the midst of battle, in the midst of life. We need to make sure that we know where we stand. Do you stand within the walls of the city of God? Do you confess Jesus is your Lord? Is Galatians 2.20 true of you? You no longer live, but Christ lives in you. We need to check that we haven't roamed out apart from God and sought to be great on our own, leaving the city of God saying, I think that I could be a ruler of this world apart from God. We need to check and, and, and be quick to call out our own hypocrisy. We need to be quick to call out our own weakness. We need to be quick to confess our own struggles with sins and quick to repent from them. And we need to make sure that we haven't begun to trust and fight or flight or freeze or fawn for our salvation when we feel the pressure on us in this world, that we haven't rejected a Savior and sought to protect our, ourselves. Don't underestimate what God has ordained for his people because if God has ordained it, it's sure that it will come true. Look at verse 8. The psalmist says, as we have heard, now so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, and we know God will establish her forever. He's alluding to a context. This isn't just spiritual sentimentality. It's not just preacher talk. He is thinking about specific things that his people have come to know over the years as they've heard the stories of God's saving deeds in the past, how he had rescued them in in times past from enemies, from armies, from slavery. He says, we have heard, but he says, we also now have seen. There's an immediate context in the rearview mirror. The Assyrians had been assaulting Zion. You read Psalm 46, 47, it gives you more details of this event. But God has thrown the enemies aside, and as they have, now they look in the immediate rear view and say, as we have heard in the past, now we've seen it for ourselves. God loves and saves his people under his care. We are completely secure And that should be the testimony of every Christian. Like that should be the testimony of of every child of God. I've heard stories that God saves people in the past, but now I have experienced his salvation for myself. I've experienced the salvation just as I had heard, and now I add my story into all of the other stories that God has rescued me from the domain of darkness. God has rescued me from Satan's destructive hand in my life, and he has brought me into his city, a city which he establishes forever. The psalmist reflects on this, and his reflection causes the people to reflect. Look at verse 9. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad that the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Now, I think what this is telling us is that we're to be a thoughtful people. Not, I don't mean thoughtful as inconsiderate. Yes, we should be considerate. But what I mean is we shouldn't be so thoughtless 
as to personally experience, to see, to hear, to taste the wonders of God and then let them melt away into forgetfulness. We should be thoughtful on them. We should return to them often. Instead, we should meditate on God's loving kindness and his surpassing greatness as we've read about it in the past and as we've experienced it for ourselves. We have to gaze upon him again and again, his works with clear eyes and not be glazed over so that we don't misinterpret any moment that we're in. Picked up a book a couple weeks ago. Lindsay is reading it ahead of me. I've just got the introduction in, but immediately um, I, I, I marked something. I thought this is a really helpful illustration. The book is called Confronting Christianity. Uh, the author is Rebecca McLaughlin, and she, she made this observation. She said, often when we observe from a distance, we misinterpret Look up at the night sky and you will see much darkness, but train a telescope on the blackest patch and a million galaxies will explode into view. Do you you see where she's going there? See, the, the critics critique from afar, right? The haters hate from a distance and they've misinterpreted the Lord. They haven't understood he is great. I said, I, you know, he seems a little weird and, and kooky, maybe a little weak or disturbed. They've critiqued from a distance. They've misinterpreted the Lord. They've misinterpreted his will. They've misinterpreted his people. They've misinterpreted the life that he promises through his son. But when they come close, the psalmist says, when they came close, God gave them a picture and they saw and it was devastating to them. And you and I, we've got to be careful that we don't become accidental opponents of God by not fixing our eyes on Jesus, by not looking into his glory and his goodness and his greatness and having our eyes glaze over and look into every other thing that glitters in this world and become convinced that he's not that great after all. The psalmist says, we've thought on your loving kindness. Verses 9 through 11, it just spawns praise. As I see you, as I think about your good and great works and your faithfulness to your people again and again and again, we can't help but see and speak of your greatness to the ends of the earth. We'll carry the stories of your greatness. They'll be on our lips. Verse 10, as your name is great, as it's powerful, as it's wonderful, as it's full of glory, As great as your name is, so will be our praises for you. We will carry them wherever we go. And he continues, your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion, let the people of Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And they're celebrating that God always does the right thing, always. That's twofold, that God does the right thing and he always does it that you can count on God, that he never strays from his character. You can always rely upon him. And the psalmist invites the people. Verse 12, go on a walk. Come out from your homes. Walk around Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever, and he will guide us until death. Remember the context, they had been assaulted by the Assyrians, God swept away the Assyrian army, but the people had been cooped up in Jerusalem for a while now with fear, they'd been isolating themselves, 
The noise from outside was loud. The heat was turned up with this foreign army banging on their walls. So it's time, the psalmist says, come out and look up, look around, count your towers. Guess what? They're all still standing. Consider the ramparts. Uh, Go through the palaces. It's unscathed, you'll find. It's magnificent. It was just a bunch of noise, but it did not hurt God or his city. So he tells them, go take a walk. Go, Go take a look. While the pressure may have been on, while you may have felt surrounded, while you may have felt the entire world is against you, I want you to take an honest look. And when you do, ask the Lord to help you perceive. And as you perceive rightly, you will see that God has not stopped being in control for one moment. And he is always faithful to his people. Rooted in history, look at our city. She still stands. Tell the next generation because they will need these stories when they face dark days of their own. And what they don't know is he's answering a question they haven't asked. He's teaching them something. The question is, how do we as the people of God live a life of praise? Or in other words, the way we said it earlier, how do we count it all joy? Consider it all joy when you face trials of of every sort. How do we do that? And the answer is we witness his works. We look and we see the good and great things that he has done and we teach our hearts to depend on the faithfulness as we've seen it again and again in our lives. Maybe we should spend as much time reading our Bibles and reading the stories of God's faithfulness to his people as we spend watching the news. I was with a family member last weekend who I I could just, I could tell what was going on as she began to speak to me. She was looking for a rise. She was asking provocative questions, wanting me to fight, flight, freeze, or fawn in response to things that are happening in our world today, and I wouldn't give it to her. Now, she is, is mostly cooped up in bed and really can't physically get around, and so she sits in front of her TV all day long watching the news, and I can tell, I know she has the joy of the Lord within her, but I can tell it has affected her mind and her outlook and her heart, watching all day the horrible events and the twists on those events have taught her a different narrative than the narrative that she is living in as a person of God. It's affecting her. Maybe we should spend more time reading of the faithfulness of God than watching the news or scrolling on TikTok, right? And not just that, it doesn't just stop with reading the histories. It it, it encourages our heart, it encourages our soul, the Spirit teaches us by it, but we've got to practice recognizing the the presence and the power of God's great works in our life personally. And, And now, God's greatness must become personal and present in each of our lives. I love Psalm 66 because the psalmist says, everybody listen up, everybody pay attention to me. And he writes this, I will declare to you what he has done for me. And that's something that we've got to practice all of the time. We've got to take time today and every day considering, Lord, what are the great things that you have done for me? What are the great things that you're in the middle of doing that I haven't even really understood yet? Lord, what are you doing in my life? Because you have promised you're faithful. I know that you're good. I know that you work all things together for those who love you and who are called by your name. 
So Lord, and if you don't see it, Lord, help me to see and perceive the great things that you are doing because I believe. Lord, just help my unbelief. You know, you can do that. You hear a Christian brother or sister, you hear a pastor say, oh, you need to take count of the great things that God is doing, but you go home and you go, man, I don't even see any of the great things because this has happened and this has happened and this has happened and I just, I haven't even felt a word from the Lord in a long time. It's just like quiet. You go to the Lord and you say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to see and perceive the things that you're doing that I may praise your name and he will open your eyes and he will open your heart. He will help you to see the great things that that he has done and as you perceive, then you take the opportunity to tell people of the great things that the Lord has done because they need to hear it. They need to hear it to push back against the narrative that culture is telling us and this is how we live a life of praise. This is how we consider it all joy when we face trials of every sort. We witness the works of God in the past and those that he's doing now, and we speak of them. We speak of them to each other. We speak of them to those who don't know him because God is great. He is greatly to be praised, and his son, Jesus, is the king. How many of you have sat at a red light, and you're tired or you're distracted? How many of you have been in a moment where you sat at a red light, you're at the front of the line of cars, and you're looking but you're not really paying attention and the light turns to green and though you're looking, you haven't noticed. Have you done that? And you're just sitting there. And you can even be staring directly at it and it's changed and nothing in you has said go until somebody honks the horn and gives you some sign language, right? That's what it means to look and to not see. And I think when we find ourselves moving to fight, flight, uh, uh, freeze, or fawn, it's evidence that we may, as the people of God, be looking but not seeing. Because God has, he's sent many signs and signals in front of us. And a lot of us have spent our life not looking at the signs and signals that God has given to guide us and to direct our paths and to communicate to us what is true, what is right, what is trustworthy. We look but we don't see, and when we do that, we fall into these baser responses that have in them no promise of peace, no promise of purpose, no security, no life in them. We fight usually because we're afraid or confused. So we go, you're wrong and I'm right. And one, we're probably not right, and two, we're not helping anyone. We move to flight, we go, well, just let's not talk about those things. You know, we don't talk about politics or religion at the table. That's the rule, right? We don't talk about those things. Let's just not, not deal with it. We, we freeze because I don't know what to do. How many of you feel like that? I don't know what to do or say with things that are happening in our world right now. Or we fawn. Again, what I mean is we go, I'm not going to really be real with myself, with the Lord, with anyone. I'm just going to try to be a chameleon and survive and blend in. If you find yourself moving into one of those baser patterns, by the way, doesn't that look more like the enemies of God than the people of God, those responses? Those who've truly seen him? If you find yourself moving into those baser patterns, I want to give you a gift this morning. It's not from me, it's from the word of God. If you find yourself moving quickly to fight when you feel threatened, 
I want you to memorize Deuteronomy 3.22. Do not fear, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. If you find yourself in the midst of secularization, in the midst of, of the rulers of this earth that say you are dumb and duped and your God is weak and, and, and the whole church thing is irrelevant and silly, don't fight it. Memorize this. The Lord your God is the one fighting for you. Be consumed with what He's doing. Be consumed with Him and allow Him to lead you. If that's not you, if you're not a, a fighter, maybe you're a, a flighter. I don't think that's a word. If you're a flighter, check this out. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Memorize this. You memorize all kinds of things. You know the gas prices. You know your stock tickers. You know sports statistics. You know lines from your favorite movies. You can memorize a couple of Bible verses, right? If you're somebody who freezes uh, and you're just like, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to say. Just don't notice me. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of power, and of love, and of discipline. Of, if you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, how can you not have power and love and discipline? Do not be afraid. And if you're a person who goes, I'm just going to try to fit a little bit everywhere and not stand out Proverbs 28, 6 says, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Ooh, right? You can take a picture of that. You want to put all four of them up? If you want to hang on to that, memorize these verses. Allow the word of God to fight back when you move into baser responses that are not rooted in him. Now, Psalm 48 what it teaches us is that the people of God, the church, Zion, is inextricably linked with God himself. We cannot be separated from him, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Our destiny, our future, as well as our history, is rooted in who he is. And knowing that this God is our God, this great one who is greatly to be praised is our God, should give us a sense of peace when we're under attack or when we feel threatened or out of favor with the, the kings of this earth. It should give us a sense of purpose when it reminds us again and again to be swept into his great cause of spreading his great fame throughout the earth. And it should give us a sense of belonging if we're feeling more marginalized or isolated in various you know, spheres we run in. It should give us a sense of belonging, that we belong to a city, the city of God, the city of the great king which will endure forever. Let's praise God for that in prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need encouraging words like this. We're so grateful that you've given us your word, the Bible, that we might have encouragement for things that we're facing right now. And as the people of God in ancient times were physically surrounded by the Assyrians, you took care of your people. You provided everything they needed. You protected them. And it wasn't even by like the, the strength of your arm. It was by the awesomeness that you are. The kings of the earth got a real picture and they bowed. They broke against you. 
And God, I pray that we wouldn't be a people who have said we saw God and then we forget your greatness. Help us to encounter you in such incredibly personal ways that we can never forget the experience that we've had with you. May we celebrate together as the people in the temple in this psalm the great things you are teaching us and revealing to us when we gather, the the words of truth that you're speaking into our minds and our hearts, that we would live in the narrative that you have written for us. We would understand the greater story story that we live in, and we would live the life that you've called us to, that you've gifted to us in your Son, and that we would be a people who are not afraid. Even when pressed, we would know we will not be crushed. Even if culture tries to strike us down, we would remember, no, we will not be destroyed because you have established a city forever. We are your people, not for our greatness, not for our status, but for your glory. For your great glory, we grab onto that. Citizens of Zion, and we boldly declare in your favor, in your care, in your presence, we are indestructible. Help us to walk in your ways, to enjoy the path of light, Help us to be a people who speak of your greatness with intensity, with all of the joy of our heart, that more and more would be welcomed into the city. For the day, Jesus, that you return, we wait with eager anticipation for the day when every tear is wiped away and there is no more trouble and no more pain. And for that, we wait and we celebrate. In Jesus' name.